Should we talk about some positive stuff, maybe? <laughs> yes. I think we probably <laughs> should. Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to Season 4 of Just Sustainability. In the previous episode of Just Sustainability, Jill Fellows and I spoke about a number of the disparities that are problems related to technology. In this episode, we switch to a more uplifting and positive topic, the ways that technology might be liberatory and empowering. Here's that conversation. I, I think one of the, the really exciting things about your book is, right, there's some, uh, some of the chapters are about like kind of the unexpected ways that technology might be liberatory or maybe not unexpected, but like some of the ways that technology can be liberatory, right? How it can be used to yeah. promote equity and like uh, autonomy for folks who right, historically might not have those things. And so maybe, mm-hmm. maybe we can close out on the, this part of the podcast by at me asking you about some of the, the, right, the good things that technology might do or the things that are might be affirming about technology that, and, Right, affirming ways that we might use technology better. Yeah. So one thing that I think is really positive is that if we find that there is a bias in an algorithm, uh-huh. in some ways it might be comparatively easier to correct for that than to try and like change people's minds in the public. <laughs> so, you know, if you have somebody who has racist or sexist or otherwise prejudicial attitudes, it can be really, really difficult yeah. to cha- engage in discourse to change the minds. But if you find it in software, in some ways it can be comparatively easier. Yeah. <laughs> so like that's an encouraging thing. Um, but I'll also add that, especially with social media and the rise of hashtags, there's been a lot of really interesting stuff happening in fourth wave feminism online that is really, really positive. So um, things like the Me Too movement, which is often pointed to as something that kind of sparked fourth wave feminism Mm -hmm. um, and this movement of digital feminism, which is kind of what characterizes fourth wave. Things like Shout Your Abortion, where people are kind of um, reclaiming this and and refusing to feel ashamed about their abortions and talking about abortion in a positive light. Mm -hmm. And then there's also um, remarkable movements on indigenous activism, both in Canada and globally. Mm-hmm. So in Canada, there's the hashtag idle no more movement, which mm-hmm. has been going now for almost 10 years, I think. And then there's, there's also um, the MMIW mm-hmm. hashtag MMIW missing and murdered indigenous women, mm-hmm. girls and two spirit people, um, which has been raising a lot of wear- awareness about the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people in Canada. Uh Um, And that movement has been going for quite a while, also has now generated... It's it's interesting because a lot of these movements are online and offline, right? So Uh the MMIW is a strong online movement that has been going for several years, but there's also offline activism. So again, I don't necessarily like to think of the digital and non-digital spaces as separate because Mm -hmm. there's things like the red dress project where people will hang red dresses Uh um, in trees, in parks as visual reminders of the women who have gone missing. Uh And often those then get taken up as pictures and posted in digital space as well. So a lot of this activism as um, the scholars who researched it and, and presented their chapter in our book 
Angela Brown and Amber, or Amber Brown and Angela Knowles, as they talked about, the activism happening online is seen as one arm of the larger wave of activism that's happening. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really, really interesting how this is moving both in digital space, but also not in digital space. Mm -hmm. And it's allowing people to connect across the country um, Mm -hmm. and to connect around the world, right? Um, Following these hashtags and supporting and amplifying these voices, which is really awesome. There's there's a lot of really positive stuff yeah. that can happen with liberatory movements in digital harnessing digital space in a really positive way. One, well, and I think it's not just broadening too, right? It also deepens it because I think I oddly enough learn a lot from TikTok, right? There's yes, a lot TikTok's of re- amazing. Yeah, there's great content, right? Like very thoughtful, deep content, right? Like um, you would think that you know short three minute videos would be like, oh, this is just really surface treatments, but there right because but people can make many three minute videos and string them together and then you end up getting yeah uh right you, you get very thoughtful discourse which uh mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then a, another um scholar who contributed to the book dr jamie yard talked about uh-huh. the power of easings to share information and personal stories and kind of spread awareness about certain global issues uh-huh. and that that's been really powerful i mean it that's kind of a fun online version of the zine that kind of mm. traveled around in the 90s during the the riot girl feminist movements then. And so we see that things that worked in physical space can work again in digital space, and this yeah. can deepen and kind of broaden global engagement on these issues. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. Well, it actually makes me think uh, of like, there are particular sort of movements uh, and areas of advocacy that having digital spaces makes uh, advocacy more accessible like like for example like disability right like yep. folks uh who might have a hard time accessing a lot of physical public spaces are digital spaces can be more accessible and given that yep. there increasingly are tools that make digital spaces more accessible there's that makes right that creates a public square for folks who might not be able to make the same sort of use of a a physical public square. Yeah. 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 And it could be people with disabilities who don't have as easy access. And it also can be things like if, if you wanted to, for example, give support to the, the West Wetton protests that Uh have are, are ongoing, but started kind of in 2019, 2020 Uh over the pipeline here in Northern BC, Uh there were a lot of people that wanted to lend support, but maybe didn't have the financial means or the abilities to travel and be physically part of the protest. And uh-huh. there's this is a way of digitally amplifying the voice of that, right? Uh-huh. And then people also had physical marches and demonstrations in solidarity in many other cities and locations uh-huh. um, in support. And I think the same thing happened with the hashtag no DAPL for the US as well. Uh-huh. Um, that people would check into the protest from around the globe and and amplify the voices, even if they couldn't physically be there uh-huh. for whatever reason. Uh-huh. Well, and there was certainly being able to show what was happening in the, the government response to the protests. Yeah. I think, yeah. right. I, I think m- made it cl- clearer to folks who might not have been aware pre- previously, right? Like how. Very much is the, still the case that indigenous folks face violence and coercion yeah. when they try to assert their rights. 
Yeah, it's a way of trying to push back against the dominant narrative. Yeah. Like we were just kind of joking earlier about how we have all got the phones on us and are <laughs> voluntarily cl- <laughs> ch- uh, carrying them around. Yeah. But it also means that we all have a camera on us. Yeah. And I remember going to an environmental conference years ago. I think it was like the the smartphone was fairly new. So it was like 2013, maybe uh-huh. um, a conference in Victoria and an indigenous man. And I can't remember um, what nation he was from, but he was giving a presentation at the conference and he held up his phone and he said like, this is a game changer uh-huh. for my community because uh-huh. we can now capture in real time what's happening. Uh-huh. And it gives you a chance to push back against the dominant narrative, right? Uh-huh. In a way that maybe wasn't as easy before <laughs> uh-huh. or wasn't possible. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that certainly is a driver for a, a lot of uh, uh, resistance movements right now. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I mean, just more broadly, when we talk about technology, assistive devices for disabled people are fantastic technological tools. Uh I mean, making podcasts is awesome for people with low vision or who get eye strain or whatever when they're reading. Uh Um, We can also have transcripts, right? Um, Uh For people who have hearing impairments or like, there's a lot that we can do to make things accessible. And it's becoming easier to do it than it used to be. And that's Uh really, really cool. Uh (laughs) And kind of liberatory as well. Yeah. As our conversation began to wind down, I asked Jill to take over the reins of the discussion, and she took the opportunity to ask me about technology and the rhetoric around digital tech and how that rhetoric obscures the environmental impacts of that tech, which led to a conversation about the ways we often don't notice how tech can serve to limit autonomy, as well as how tech can be subverted to improve one's self-awareness. Uh, I tend to close off by asking folks that are on the podcast to kind of take the reins, right? Because I, I think as long as I'm sort of, you know, asking the questions, I just sort of, I mean, I don't get necessarily get exactly what I expect, but I, I at least get conversation at the topics I expect. But sometimes mm-hmm. it's the things that I don't think to ask about or the things I don't expect that are most interesting. So, uh, yeah. Uh, is there anything that you would like to talk about or think are interesting that I haven't asked you about? Yeah. Um, and I think it's something that maybe I want to talk about because I knew I was going to be talking to you and that you have more of a background in environmental philosophy. Sure. Because I think, I think one thing that often gets promoted with tech is that tech is going to like fix our environmental problems. Oh, sure. Yes. (laughs) Which to some degree, there have been, you know, great sweeping movements when it comes to things like, um, batteries and solar power and stuff like that. But uh-huh. we often are sold this narrative of tech as an environmental solution. Like we're going to make in electric cars and then we can just carry on with our day-to-day lives uh-huh. or we'll do more things online and then everything will be fine. Uh-huh. Um, you know, go paperless and all that stuff. Yeah. But of course the server, the, these solutions are not neutral, right? The no. servers and cables that are connecting you and me today um, occupy land. They yes. use immense amounts of power and materials to build and sustain. Yeah. And they're owned by somebody. The other... There's so much, right? Yeah. Thomas Mulvaney um, wrote an article that tells us that the data centers alone are using something like 2% of global energy. Yeah. And Google emits over 50 kilograms of CO2 every minute. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just, I wanted to talk to you because we are fed 
these narratives, like we're encouraged to think think of things like the cloud and digital space. Mm-hmm. And I think we're often encouraged to think of tech, especially digital tech, as kind of like ephemeral mind space or something. <laughs> right. Not not something that actually takes a, a ton of infrastructure. Not something that's physical and yeah. extracted from the earth, right? Yes. And so yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. Um particularly I was thinking about Starlink as a really interesting example. Okay. Like Starlink is there now, right? Um, I'm not super familiar with Starlink. I know it's the Elon Musk internet, but I don't really know much other than that. Have you seen it? No. Okay. I saw it the other day, which is maybe why I'm thinking about it. It was a a weird, clear day, which doesn't happen often in the West Coast in the winter. Yeah. (laughs) But its existence is what I've told is allows a lot more people access to digital space when we were talking about the digital divide, right? Yeah. But it's also like permanently altered the phenomenological experience of the night sky in a way that I found really kind of creepy. Like it's okay. this string of lights that goes across the sky in a very regular and ordered way. And it's, it was really, I'm sure it won't be chilling once I get used to it, but it was weird. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to talk about like the environmental impact here and the ways in which we're encouraged not to think about the environmental impact. Yeah, or the the way that it uh, it obscures parts of the conversation that I think are maybe more important ones to have or more impactful. Yeah. No. So I do. So I right. I agree. Uh, I do think a lot. There's a lot of better living through chemistry, sort of like right, reechoed, uh, or right, like there's a rhetoric that is very similar to the better living through chemistry rhetoric, where you know, tech. We will tech. We will find technological solutions to our environmental problems or sustainability problems right and that uh that having a more sustainable future is about identifying the right technologies and i think this happens uh sometimes in terms of like right like gadgets and digital technology or like batteries or like Mm -hmm. energy technology but i think it also happens uh more sort of sneakily and insidiously when it comes to like uh technologies that don't get recognized as technologies like when you know folks are having conversations about how do you make how to have like more drought resistant agriculture or like thinking through like, right. How do we have mm-hmm. more climate resilient uh, crops or things like that? Um, and I, and I, and I think the, the problem there is that it reinforces some political and economic structures that are maybe the ones that are the, that are responsible for us finding ourselves where we are. Right. Right. So like, I, I do think um, it's easy to say that, like, how do we reduce our emissions? Well, we just all buy a Tesla or like we set up, you know, solar panels and batteries in our houses um, and then just keep kind of, you know, living our sort of inefficient energy, uh, wasteful yeah. sort of lifestyles, because, you know, that is what will make someone the most money. And then that technology can be controlled by the right like the same folks that control the fossil fuel technology now and so that mm-hmm. you know they don't have to they continue to be right like earning money for the shareholders um yeah and so i i, I do think the rhetoric about technology can make us not thoughtful about sort of the deeper more fundamental problems that exacerbate or cause a lot of the problems right so like it strikes me that um one of the the key sustainability problems is poverty because whatever kind of uh, difficulty that makes life harder for folks, those tend to be 
buffered by wealth and exacerbated by poverty. Mm-hmm. And I and I think this emphasis on technology and specifically a particular kind of technology, right? Technology that's patentable, right? Excludable from folks, uh, rather than other forms of technology, like you know, uh, uh, like so, like so. Here's an example. So one of the the projects uh, that's I think it uh, arguably a technology project that I uh, that happened maybe a decade ago that I really liked was uh, the UN Development Project Program did a project in um, so where, where was it uh, I think it was Bangladesh where they were thinking about how to like do agricultural adaptation uh, to address some of the flooding that's associated with climate change and what they did was um, they went to subsistence farmers and sort of examined how they already or historically um, dealt with floods. Like what were sort of things, practices they would engage in or like the things that they would do on their, right. Their, their subsistence farms Mm -hmm. to, um, to deal with floods because uh, while flooding is going to be worse with climate change, uh, Bangladesh is the entire country is almost all in the, the Ganges, uh, um, Delta, right? So like historically they, they flood a lot and they flood with like brackish water, which, you know, is generally not very great for agriculture. And so yeah, they, they had done things in the past to deal with this. Um, and the, the project was to explore what were some of the, the things that people did, which would be effective uh, given the changing climate and then work with farmer networks to like teach those methods to right a broader range of agriculturalists so folks could start implementing some of those practices on their farms. Um, and that is certainly right uh, a technology and thinking about how do we do technology in a way that makes it accessible totally. uh, to the folks that it impacts the most. Um, and it's also like amazing feminist practice, right? Start, start yeah. from the lives that are most affected. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and do it in a way that doesn't, uh, open the folks uh, to exploitation, right? So, like, yeah, yeah, right. Like, so if knowledge gathering and knowledge sharing, sharing from marginalized communities, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, and right, and the thing is, because it maintains local control of the technologies developed, mm-hmm. right? So, like, right, if the, the the dissemination of it is through the right local networks of folks, right, uh, and the expertise is developed locally rather than having folks come in and be like serve as like you know advisors and consultants to to train folks how to use particular technologies or right to to have technologies that are are developed and owned elsewhere yeah and then right like just sort of like come with uh whatever strings attached it's something that is entirely under local control and i and i think when we're talking about technology in terms of like addressing sustainability and environmental problems it's often the case that we're, we have a very unsophisticated conversation about that technology, right? We're not thinking about how do we make that technology or develop that technology in ways that make it that make it more difficult to exploit folks and not make it yeah. easier to exploit folks, right? So, like, yeah. I think – so this is something I talk to my students a lot. Like, when you think about how we often think about technology and what we count as technology and the sorts of technology that we tend to appeal to as our solutions – where is that technology normally developed? All right, I asked them to think about that. And then I think when mm-hmm. they're being honest, it, it's it developed by private industry or by yeah. research institutes in uh, 
normally the United States, right? Like sometimes yeah. in Western Europe, sometimes in Canada, but most often in the United States. Yeah. Um, and then it gets patented and then owned by someone who is driven by a profit motive. Yeah. And then, so if that's the technologies that we're seeing as our, our, uh, solutions and that's the technology that we are um, requiring people implement when we when you know international funding agencies or like international relief agencies or international development agencies are are supporting projects um well what you're in fact doing is uh right making people become beholden to the owners of that technology mm-hmm. which you know i think you know is missing yeah. a key important the uh, Siderata when we're thinking about how do we become more sustainable. I, I don't think um, making folks more subjective or subject to uh, exploitation is in fact makes the their communities more sustainable. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for thinking through some of the stuff I was trying to think about. Yeah. Because yeah, I think when I think about how a lot of this stuff is marketed, it's marketed in ways that encourage us to think of it especially digital tech as Uh kind of like clean or somehow floating free Uh of the environment. Uh (laughs) Um, And of course that's not true. Uh And just as you were saying, making people beholden to, to physical tech when it comes to things like farming and agricultural practices, we're also making people beholden to digital tech Uh in ways that are potentially problematic. Uh (laughs) Um, and and digital tech, right, it is physical. Like, it's built with physical material extracted from the earth. It's maintained with physical power, with burning fossil fuels, with a huge amount of human labor. A lot of people are being incredibly exploited to keep the digital tech machines going. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, that's that's something that I think about a lot in terms of tech equity and in terms of how how we're framing conversations about what we're going to do with this digital space. I mean, I think, and this is maybe not the most satisfying, but when I think about the research that I've done over the last few years, I end up kind of saying things are complex and complicated. Like, uh-huh. we are empowered by this technological space. Um, I've seen people make amazing TikToks and YouTube videos and Twitter um, chains uh-huh. sharing ideas and work, and I've learned so much about other people's perspectives. And uh-huh. I don't want to say that it is what I was promised in terms of a digital democracy, but it is part of what I was promised in terms of access to ideas and perspectives and information from around the globe. But it uh-huh. isn't even right. English is still the dominant language, uh-huh. and people are being exploited to keep this going, and it's messy. Uh-huh. And I guess I just want us to like wade into the mess uh-huh. because I think we can demand better. Uh-huh. We can, we could more mindfully shape our digital ma- la- uh, landscape. We don't have to follow Zuckerberg's slogan of moving fast and breaking things. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we can slow down. Yeah. We can take our time. We can think about this um, more carefully and think about what values we are shaping our digital world with. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I think we should be thinking a little bit more carefully and moving a little bit more slowly because I I think right while certainly there are good outcomes when it comes to digital tech. And I think there's good outcomes when it comes to even the sort of technologies that I was talking about when it comes to agriculture and like environment, like creating 
um, varieties of crops that are drought resistant or like salt resistant or like, yeah, yeah. you know, flood resistant th- that will have good outcomes. And like, you know, in it, right. Just like the historical green Re- revolution in some ways phased out some sorts of hunger, right? Like it's rarely the case that people are starving to death anymore. Like people still suffer from like nutritional deficiencies or suffer from things like, mm-hmm. you know, um, having the wrong sorts of nutrition that leads to like metabolic problems, like, right like diabetes or heart disease but um i I think one thing that is concerning is that those benefits become contingent on the willingness of someone to provide those benefits yeah right so like i think digital spaces i think have been terrific like right like i was talking about tiktok in creating uh public forums for folks with you know messages that have historically been excluded from popular media like mainstream media yeah yeah but right like but those forums aren't truly public right no uh, uh, right like tiktok can can right can ban anyone they want like yeah facebook can ban anything anyone they want and you know right now they're not banning folks because you know those folks are driving ad revenue but right if those folks ever become threatening to uh TikTok or Facebook or the folks who own yeah. TikTok or Facebook or like, you know, threatening to their uh, stock portfolios. Yeah. I would imagine that those, right, the... Yeah, lots of people have already expressed ways in which they've been shadow banned. So they're not uh-huh. exclusive, explicitly banned, but their content is de- devalued by the algorithm so people don't find it. Uh-huh. Um and there's already people cropping up and like how to game the algorithm. I don't know if you've seen any any of these, but there was for a while a long trend on YouTube and more even more so on TikTok of people doing makeup tutorials mm-hmm. where they'd start out doing a makeup tutorial and then about mm, 15, 30 seconds in, they start doing their what they really want to do, which is talk about social justice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While still doing their eyebrows and things like that. So yeah, you know, you're beholden in the same way. We might say that people become beholden on the purveyors of technology when it comes to things like drought resistance crops. Yeah. You're beholden to the algorithm and to the company that is the platform, right? The social mm. media platform. And you can work within the system and try and find ways of gaming the system. But there are limitations to what you can do and there are risks. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We've already mm-hmm. talked about things like doxing and harassment. And I find I find that tension really, really troubling but also very intellectually rich to explore uh-huh. um and I, I would like to see more open access stuff but that brings us back to the issue of free labor yeah. <laughs> open access doesn't come out of nowhere either right no. well it's free labor and it's also right like there's the, there's also the issue of it just being sort of wild west yeah where you know and it's also um, from what I understand, from what I've read, when it comes to digital technology, when you're talking about things like open access, um, a lot of that material is done predominantly by men who tend to have more free time to work on that kind of stuff than women do, who are uh-huh. often doing second shift labor um, and care work and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So even there, yes, it's Wild West. And also, there are still gender issues Uh and there isn't gender equity when it comes to open access software yeah yeah. or class equity right like um, yeah totally yeah there's no yeah open access isn't really isn't right completely open yeah no 
No. Yeah. It's open for people who have. And the digital divide is there too, right? Who's actually able to be there to do this work. Yeah. So. Well, and it's complicated. (laughs) Well, and yeah. And and I think this is something that right with the, the Mastodon Twitter stuff that I think really highlights how for, um, Mastodon isn't nearly as good for amplifying messages from, uh, right. Like activists of color, for example. Yeah. Uh, where TikTok's algorithms might actually get more people to see that kind of stuff when um, I think Mastodon, because fo- everything is self-curated, uh, I, I think some of the, the biases that people have mean that, you know, for yeah. cer- some folks just have a much harder time getting eyes on their messages in, on Mastodon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there is kind of a way we can try and use that in an empowering way, though, because the algorithm does feed us back into our biases. Uh So you can learn quite quickly what the algorithm thinks your biases are. (laughs) And they're like, like Google, for example, you can go and look at all the assumptions Google has made about you and why Google is giving you what it is. And so my, my smarter students use this as well to learn about themselves and to push themselves out of their biases to specifically subscribe to things, for example, that they would never get offered. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, and maybe not something, maybe, maybe it's just me. I didn't think of that till my students pointed it out. Uh-huh. I don't know if people in my generation are thinking about it that way, but like for my students working within and working against the algorithm is kind of second nature. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think younger folks are more sophisticated about that than older folks. Totally. Um, yeah. Well, no, yeah. Cause this actually reminds me of a conversation I engaged in with some colleagues and friends where, uh, we had a Christmas party and we were just sort of joking. We were talking about TikTok and we were just joking about like, right. The, the various sides of TikTok that TikTok has put us in and the ones that were like unexpected and the ones that were expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's some element to that. Uh, some of the, the assumptions that TikTok has made for me have been revealing to me yeah. about like, huh. See, you should have asked TikTok who Jell Fellows is when you started this interview. <laughs> who, who, who it does, probably knows better than I do. Who does TikTok think you are? What, what's, <laughs> what, what's, what's the side of TikTok that, right, that possible for you that's unexpected? I mean, there's the expected stuff, which is cat videos. Yeah. Like lots and lots of cat videos um, and some academic content, right? Yeah. Um, What's unexpected? Like cat videos, crochet videos, academic content, unexpected stuff. Like the stuff that's made me go like, why are you showing me that? Yeah. I think TikTok and YouTube shorts are both, both think that I'm much more interested in, I don't know what to call this content, like ASMR kind of stuff. Like it, they really, maybe it's, it's women my age are interested in that stuff. I'm not that interested in ASMR, but TikTok and, uh, and YouTube seems to think that I am. <laughs> um, and also, like, the the gross-out stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, where it's, like, showing people with, like, pimples and stuff that they're popping. And, oh, like, TikTok yeah. really thinks I want that. I don't think I want that. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually do yeah. enjoy some of that. I, for some reason, <laughs> I, I find that, like, the, the, the ones where they were, like, removing earwax plugs, for some reason, seem strangely satisfying to me when the big giant earwax plug comes out and you see the <laughs> like the healthy like eardrum behind it i'm just like yes uh maybe it's just good job <laughs> problem being resolved yeah it is interesting right how some of those things but yeah for me it's it's military history like i don't care about military history at least i don't think i do 
but TikTok certainly thinks I do. So like, interesting. I, yeah, I end up getting like weird, like military history TikTok. And then like, I get a lot of feminist TikTok, which is, you know, okay, yeah. that's to be expected. Yeah. I get a lot of like kind of um, different social justice movement TikTok. Yes, that's ex- expected. And then like, this was like super like, like nerdy military history TikTok and like about like Roman legions and stuff. I'm like, what? Wow. I didn't know <laughs> nothing about this. I've never, I, not that I, I've never thought about like Roman legions. I, I don't know how I've engaged with it in the past. Right. Yeah. It is interesting. So some of it must be just like, it so, makes assumptions based on demographics. Yeah. It sorted you into a box with other people. Yeah. like similar things to you and they like Roman history. <laughs> yeah. That's what, so it's not just teaching you about you, right? It's teaching you about who, who it thinks your people are, I yeah. guess, who, where it's put you and who it thinks what, what people that it's put you with tend to like. Yeah. So it, if, if we do engage with the algorithms that way, I think we can learn a whole lot about ourselves. I mean, the tech companies are learning a ton about us by doing that uh-huh. and we could too. And I do think that younger generations are approaching it that way. I, I don't think people in my generation are approaching it that way as much. No. I think we are more passive consumers of algorithmically generated suggestions. Well, I, I think the algorithms are opaque to us, right? Like, I, I don't think, yeah. I don't, I think most people in our generation and older don't recognize that everybody gets a different internet. Yeah. Right. I think everybody no, I just think thinks that's like, true. yeah. Because I, I, this is certainly the case with like, uh, I, I see this a lot with my like my in-laws like right like they are surprised when I don't get all the weird like conservative like, yes. like talking points that are like that on like my social media when they say like right like it's just a, a given I'm just like where'd you get that from like have yeah. you seen them like no <laughs> <laughs> I have not been categorized as a, a conservative by the algorithm so yeah yeah, I remember actually having that conversation with my dad when the 2016 American election was happening. Uh-huh. And my dad was saying, but look at everything I'm seeing online. Like, Clinton is definitely going to win. And I'm like, oh, but uh-huh. you're seeing the Clinton online. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're not seeing the the Trump internet. You're seeing the Clinton internet. Yeah, you saw the <laughs> and Trump I wanted internet. Him, yeah. yeah, I wanted my dad to be right. And I'm very happy that my dad wasn't seeing the Trump internet. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, we don't see the whole picture anymore. No. Um, probably. I mean, we never did see the whole picture, but it is it is presented as though it's the whole picture. picture yeah. And I do think that younger generations are a lot more savvy about that, yeah. at least the ones that are, are in digital space, right? So we still have to think about the digital divide and stuff like that. But uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly the case. I, I learn about how to use the internet from my students, and I am very glad that I interact a lot with young folks that Right. Otherwise, I think. Right. Yeah, I would have a, a much less of an understanding of of uh, the ways that the internet is trying to fool me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess this sounds like a good place to wrap up. Thank you for spending two hours chatting with me. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And that brings us to the end of the conversation that I had with Jill Fellows. During that conversation, Jill taught us about how she approaches public scholarship and her podcasts. She also told us about some of the disparities that are related to technology. Finally, she discussed some of the ways that technology has empowered folks and how it might be subverted to examine biases. In the next episode of Just Sustainability, I'll introduce you to another old friend, Shane Epting. Shane is a philosopher of the city at the Missouri University of Science and Technology, and he'll tell us about municipalities, municipalities as technology, as well as what that all means for equity and sustainability.
Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.